0: CHAPTER Six: SPECIALIZED KNOWLEDGE PERSONAL EXPERIENCES OR OBSERVATIONS THE FOURTH STEP TOWARD RICHES There are two kinds of knowledge. One is general, the other is specialized. General knowledge, no matter how great in quantity or variety it may be, is of little use in the accumulation of money. The faculties of the great universities possess practically every form of general knowledge known to civilization most of the professors have little money they specialize in teaching knowledge but they do not specialize in the organization or the use of knowledge knowledge will not attract money unless it is organized and directed through practical plans for the specific purpose of accumulating money lack of understanding of this fact has been the source of confusion to millions of people who falsely believe that knowledge is power it is nothing of the sort Knowledge is only potential power, it becomes power only when and if it is organized into definite plans of action and directed to a definite end. The missing link in all systems of education is that educational institutions fail to teach their students how to organize and use the knowledge after they have acquired it. Many people made the mistake of assuming that because Henry Ford had little schooling, he was not a man of education. Those who made this mistake did not understand the real meaning of the word educate. That word is derived from the Latin word educo, meaning to educe, to draw out, or to develop from within. An educated person is not necessarily one who has an abundance of general or specialized knowledge. An educated person is one who has so developed the faculties of their mind that he or she may acquire anything they want, or its equivalent, without violating the rights of others. During the World War, a Chicago newspaper published editorials in which, among other statements, Henry Ford was called an ignorant pacifist. Mr. Ford objected to the statements and sued the paper for libeling him. When the suit was tried in the courts, the attorneys for the paper called Mr. Ford to the witness stand for the purpose of proving to the jury that he was ignorant. They asked Mr. Ford a great variety of questions all of them intended to prove that while he might possess considerable specialized knowledge about manufacturing automobiles, he was, in the main, ignorant. Mr. Ford was asked such questions as, Who was Benedict Arnold, and how many soldiers did the British send over to America to put down the Rebellion of 1776? In answer to the last question, Mr. Ford replied, I do not know the exact number of soldiers the British sent over, but I have heard that it was a considerably larger number than ever went back. Finally, Mr. Ford became tired of this line of questioning. In reply to a particularly offensive question, he leaned over, pointed his finger at the lawyer who had asked the question, and said, "'If I should really want to answer the foolish question you have just asked, or any of the other questions you have been asking me, let me remind you that I have a row of electric push-buttons on my desk.' and by pushing the right button I can summon to my aid men who can answer any question I desire to ask concerning the business to which I am devoting most of my efforts. Now, will you kindly tell me why I should clutter up my mind with general knowledge for the purpose of being able to answer questions when I have men around me who can supply any knowledge I require? That answer floored the lawyer. Every person in the courtroom realized it was the answer not of an ignorant man, but of a man of education. Any person is educated who knows where to get knowledge when they need it and how to organize that knowledge into definite plans of action. Through the assistance of his mastermind group, Henry Ford had at his command all the specialized knowledge he needed to become one of the wealthiest men in America. It was not essential that he have this knowledge in his own mind. You can get all the knowledge you need. Before you can transmute your desire into money, you will require specialized knowledge of the service, merchandise, or profession that you intend to offer in return for fortune. Perhaps you may need much more specialized knowledge than you have the ability or the inclination to acquire. If this is true, you may bridge your weakness through the aid of your mastermind group. The mastermind is defined as coordination of knowledge and effort in a spirit of harmony between two or more people for the attainment of a definite purpose. The larger meaning of the mastermind group is explained in greater detail in later chapters. Editor's Comments After reading Hill's definition of the mastermind, many people may assume that he is describing teamwork. That would not be correct. The following explanation is adapted from the Napoleon Hill Foundation's book, Believe and Achieve. Teamwork can be achieved by any group, even one whose members have disparate interests, because all it requires is cooperation. In teamwork, people might simply be cooperating because they like the leader or out of a sense of duty. Some team members will give 100% to any team that pays them enough, but they have little concern about the objective. And sometimes there is good teamwork because different members have different agendas. A board of directors may disagree, even be unfriendly, and still run a business successfully. Musical groups are made up of notoriously self-centered people who work as a team if it will help them get ahead. Masterminds on the other hand are formed of individuals who have the same agenda, a deep sense of mission, and commitment to the same goal. Masterminds represent the highest order of thinking by a group of knowledgeable people each contributing their absolute best according to their abilities, expertise, and background. If you have ever been a part of a meeting when everything just clicked and ideas built upon other ideas, with each member contributing until out-of-the-group activity came the best possible idea or solution, that was a mastermind at work. Napoleon Hill believed that you must make the mastermind experience a regular part of your life if you really want to succeed. How to select the right people for your mastermind will be discussed further in Chapter 11, The Power of the Mastermind. This is the end of the editor's comment. The accumulation of great fortunes calls for power, and power is acquired through highly organized and intelligently directed specialized knowledge. That knowledge does not, necessarily, have to be in the possession of the person who accumulates the fortune. This should give hope and encouragement to those who want to accumulate a fortune, but don't have the necessary education to supply such specialized knowledge. People sometimes go through life suffering from inferiority complexes because they are not people of education. The person who can organize and direct a mastermind group of people who possess the knowledge needed is just as much a person of education as any other individual in the group. Thomas A. Edison had only three months of schooling during his entire life, but he did not lack education, neither did he die poor. Henry Ford had less than a sixth grade schooling, but he managed to do pretty well by himself financially. Albert Einstein was working as a clerk in a patent office when he began to develop his world-altering scientific theories. Editor's Comments Had Einstein been born today, He might have been diagnosed in his early years as having Attention Deficit Disorder. As a child, he was slow to learn to talk. As a student, he showed little promise and was expelled from at least one school. But what Einstein could do was to focus his concentration on a goal of his choice. His famous theories were the result of thought experiments, experiments that took place inside his mind. It is said that the breakthrough which led him to the theory of relativity came not from specialized knowledge of physics or mathematics, but from his ability to imagine what would happen if he were riding on a beam of starlight through space. This is the end of the editor's comments. Specialized knowledge is among the most plentiful and the cheapest forms of service that may be had. If you doubt this, consult the payroll of any university. It pays to know how to purchase knowledge, and it pays to know where to look. First of all, decide the sort of specialized knowledge you require and the purpose for which it is needed. To a large extent, your major purpose in life, the goal toward which you are working, will help determine what knowledge you need. Your next move requires that you have accurate information concerning dependable sources of knowledge. The more important of these are your own experience and education, experience and education available through cooperation of others, Mastermind Alliance, colleges and universities, public libraries, and even easier the internet, special training courses through night schools and home study courses in particular. As knowledge is acquired, it must be organized and put into use for a definite purpose through practical plans. Knowledge has no value except for what can be gained from its application toward some worthy end. Successful people never stop acquiring specialized knowledge related to their major purpose, business, or profession. Those who are not successful usually make the mistake of believing that the knowledge acquiring period ends when you finish school. The truth is that schools do little more than teach you how to acquire practical knowledge. Editor's Comments At this point in the original edition of Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill included a newspaper story about education and job opportunities. Although the contemporary job market has changed considerably, the author of the article, Robert Moore, Director of Placements at Columbia University, made some comments that are perfectly aligned with the philosophy of Think and Grow Rich and are still holding true today. One such comment was, the man who has been active on the campus, whose personality is such that he gets along with all kinds of people, and who has done an adequate job with his studies, has a most decided edge over the strictly academic student. One of the largest industrial companies, the leader in its field, in writing to Mr. Moore concerning prospective seniors at the college said, we emphasize qualities of character, intelligence, and personality, far more than specific educational background. Although few would argue that education is valuable, as Moore implies above and as Hill noted earlier about Edison, Ford, and Einstein, academic accomplishment has never been a sure indicator of success. The October 27, 2003 issue of Time magazine made a similar point in their cover story about the changes being made in the SAT exam. Although the article's primary focus is on the efforts to make the SAT less biased, it also notes that recent research indicates that neither the SAT nor IQ tests have proven to be very reliable predictors of future real world achievement. In his best selling book, Emotional Intelligence, author Daniel Goleman has created a persuasive argument that the way in which a person handles themselves and their relationships which he calls emotional intelligence, or EI, is a much better indicator than IQ in predicting whether a person will be successful in life. In his later books, Working with Emotional Intelligence and Primal Leadership, Goldman applies his theory to the workplace, focusing on emotional intelligence leadership techniques and comparing corporate managers' EI with their IQ to analyze which has the greatest positive effect on the financial bottom line. Daniel Goleman's theories have caused some significant changes within educational circles and among management theorists, but their greatest impact has been on individuals who have gone through life intimidated because they believe they aren't smart enough. For them, Goleman's books offer convincing evidence that although they may not have conventional education, their natural abilities and interpersonal skills can be far more important in achieving success. This is the end of the editor's comments. One of the most reliable and practical sources of knowledge available to those who need specialized schooling are night schools, extension courses, and seminars. The correspondence schools give specialized training anywhere the U.S. mails go, or via the Internet. One advantage of home study training is the flexibility of the study program, which permits you to study during spare time. Another advantage of home study training, if the school is carefully chosen, is that most courses offer some method of personal consultation, which can be of priceless value to those needing specialized knowledge. No matter where you live, you can share the benefits. A Lesson from a Collection Agency Anything acquired without effort and without cost Is generally unappreciated and often discredited. Perhaps this is why we get so little from our marvelous opportunity in public schools. The self-discipline you will learn from a program of specialized study can make up for the wasted opportunity when knowledge was available without cost. Being asked to pay whether you make good grades or poor has the effect of causing you to follow through with a course when you would otherwise drop it. I learned this from experience when I enrolled for a home study course in advertising. After completing eight or ten lessons, I stopped studying. But the school did not stop sending me bills. In fact, they insisted upon payment whether I kept up my studies or not. I decided that if I had to pay for the course, which I had legally obligated myself to do, I should complete the lessons and get my money's worth. Correspondence schools are well-organized businesses. At the time, I felt that their collection system was somewhat too well-organized, but I learned later in life that it was a valuable part of my education. The truth is that their collection department constituted the very finest sort of training on decision-making, promptness, and the habit of finishing what you begin. The collection system that forced me to finish the course turned out to be worth much in the form of money earned. The Road to Specialized Knowledge We have in this country what is said to be the greatest public school system in the world. One of the strange things about human beings is that they value only that which has a price. The free schools of America and the free public libraries do not impress people because they are free. This is the major reason why so many people find it necessary to acquire additional training after they finish school and go to work. It is also one of the major reasons why employers give greater consideration to employees who take specialized training courses. They have learned that those who have the ambition to give up a part of their spare time to studying at home have in them those qualities that make for leadership. There is one weakness in people for which there is no remedy. It is the universal weakness of lack of ambition. People who give up some of their spare time to take courses seldom remain at the bottom very long. By taking such courses, they open the way for the upward climb, remove many obstacles from their path, and attract the interest of those who have the power to help them. The home study method of training is especially suited to people who have already started working. They often find that after having left school, they still need additional specialized knowledge but cannot spare the time to go back to school. Stuart Austin Weir was a construction engineer. He followed this line of work until the Depression hit and severely limited the construction business. He took inventory of himself and decided to change his profession to law. He went back to school and took special courses to prepare himself as a corporation lawyer. He completed his training, passed the bar examination, and quickly built a lucrative law practice as a patent attorney. Just to keep the record straight, and to anticipate the excuses of those who will say, I couldn't go to school because I have a family to support, or I'm too old, I will add that Mr. Weir was past 40 and married when he went back to school. Moreover, by carefully selecting highly specialized courses, Mr. Weir completed in two years the work that it takes the majority of law students four years to do. It pays to know how to purchase knowledge. A Simple Idea That Paid Off Here's another specific example about a salesman in a grocery store who found himself suddenly unemployed. Having had some bookkeeping experience, he took a special course in accounting, familiarized himself with all the latest bookkeeping and office equipment, and went into business for himself. Starting with a grocer for whom he had formerly worked, He made contracts with more than 100 small merchants to keep their books at a very nominal monthly fee. His idea was so practical that he soon found it necessary to set up a portable accounting office in a light delivery truck. He now has a fleet of these bookkeeping offices on wheels. He employs a large staff of assistants who provide small merchants with accounting services equal to the best that money can buy at very nominal cost. Specialized Knowledge plus imagination, were the ingredients that went into this unique and successful business. Last year, the owner of that business paid income taxes of almost ten times as much as was paid by the grocery store that fired him. Editor's Comments It would be impossible to write a contemporary book about success without including the story of Bill Gates. And although the connection between the world's wealthiest man and and Hill's story about a man who started a mobile accounting business may not be immediately obvious, the fact is that this is a very apt place to include the story of Microsoft. Just as with the mobile accountant, the two defining characteristics of Bill Gates' success are specialized knowledge and imagination. Everyone had recognized at an early age that Bill Gates was a very bright student, but he had little interest in anything other than science and math. And when the mother's group at his school arranged for the students to learn about computing, that became his passion. By the time he was 13, he taught himself computer programming. And throughout high school and his years at university, his life revolved around computer clubs and odd jobs working for companies that had something to do with computers. Although at various times he toyed with the idea of a career in science or law, It is probably fair to say that while he was still in school, Bill Gates knew, in general terms, what his burning desire in life would be. He paid little attention to general knowledge, but devoted himself to assembling the specialized knowledge he would need to achieve his definite major purpose. Gates' burning desire heated up the day his friend and fellow computer club member Paul Allen bought a copy of the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics. On the cover was a picture of an inexpensive desktop computer, the Altair 8800, which could be built from a kit. Gates and Allen knew in their gut that there were other students just like them who would love to get their hands on one of these things. At the time, it took a lot of imagination to foresee the impact computers might have on the average person. And even though they didn't own an Altair, they decided they could write a computer program for it. That took even more imagination. They contacted Ed Roberts, the founder of the company that made the Altair, and pitched their idea. Roberts told them he was getting offers from all over, and his policy was that whoever wrote it first would get the job. For the next two months, they tore apart the manual, gleaning the specialized knowledge they would need to write the program. They were the first to deliver a workable operating system and Roberts bought it from them for $3,000 plus a royalty on sales. With their vision of the future burning in their imaginations, Gates and Allen used the advance and their royalties to launch a company that would be in the business of writing computer programs. They named their new company Microsoft and called old friends from their high school computer club to staff it. Bill Gates was 19, and Paul Allen was only a few years older they and about nine of their friends started writing programs for Apple Computer, Commodore, and anyone else who would contract with the company for their services. For the next five years, Bill Gates and Paul Allen had their share of imaginative ideas, but mostly they concentrated on learning the specialized knowledge needed to run and grow a successful business. Then in 1980, IBM, which had finally decided to get into the small computer business, needed help getting up to speed. They approached Microsoft to write an operating system for the new computer venture. Once again, specialized knowledge and imagination were the qualities that guided Bill Gates. In their imagination, Gates and Allen could see an even bigger future than before, and through specialized knowledge of what computers were capable of, they knew the role they could play in that future. They then made two business moves that are the foundation of the Microsoft success. First. Because IBM had such a tight schedule, Gates went to a computer programmer, Tim Patterson, and bought from him a rudimentary but already developed operating system. Gates then set to work modifying the system, and he renamed it MS-DOS, for Microsoft Disk Operating System. The other move that was crucial to their success was the negotiation with IBM. They started from the position that they would not sell an operating system to IBM, what they would do was license the system to IBM in exchange for a royalty on every copy sold with an IBM computer. And it would not be an exclusive license, which meant that Microsoft could also license the system to other computer companies. If you were to continue to track the history of Microsoft, you would find those same qualities, a burning desire, an idea, specialized knowledge, and imagination, behind each move Bill Gates made and continues to make, just as they were behind the success of the man who started the mobile accounting business. This is the end of the editor's comments. The beginning of the successful mobile accounting business was an idea. I know this is true because I was the one who gave him that idea. Now I'd like to pass on the story of another idea and it was my accountant friend who indirectly suggested this one to me. When I first proposed the accounting idea to him, he said, I like the idea, but I would not know how to turn it into cash. In other words, he did not know how to market his bookkeeping knowledge after he had acquired it. So, with the aid of a young woman copywriter, a very attractive presentation was prepared describing the advantages of the new system of bookkeeping. The brochure told the story of this new business so effectively that its owner soon had more accounts than he could handle. There are thousands of people all over the country who need the services of a merchandising specialist capable of preparing an attractive way to market personal services. This idea was born of the necessity to solve a specific problem, but it did not stop by serving merely one person. The woman who created the presentation has a keen imagination, She saw in her newly born brainchild the making of a new profession to serve thousands of people who need practical guidance in marketing personal services. Spurred to action by the success of her first prepared plan to market personal services, this woman turned to solving a similar problem for her son. He had just finished college, but had been totally unable to find a market for his services. The plan she created for him was the best example of merchandising personal services I have ever seen. When the presentation had been completed, it contained nearly fifty pages of beautifully typed, properly organized information. It told the story of her son's natural abilities, schooling, personal experiences, and a great variety of other information. The book also contained a complete description of the position her son desired, together with a marvelous word picture of the exact plan he would use in filling his position. The preparation of the presentation required several weeks of her time, during which she sent her son to the public library almost daily to get specific data needed to sell his services to best advantage. She also sent him to all the competitors of his prospective employer, where he gathered information concerning their business methods. This was of great value in the formation of the plan he intended to use in filling the position he sought. When the plan was finished, it contained more than half a dozen very fine suggestions that would benefit the prospective employer. You don't have to start at the bottom. You may be inclined to ask, why go to all this trouble to secure a job? The answer is, doing a thing well is never trouble. The plan prepared by this woman for her son helped him get the job at the first interview and had a salary fixed by himself. Moreover, and this too is important, the position did not require the young man to start at the bottom. He began as a junior executive at an executive salary. Why go to all this trouble? Well, for one thing, this young man's planned presentation saved him no less than ten years of working his way up. The idea of starting at the bottom and working your way up may appear to be sound, but the major objection to it is this. Too many of those who begin at the bottom never manage to lift their heads high enough to be seen by those who count. And the outlook from the bottom is not very bright or encouraging. It has a tendency to kill off ambition. You get into a rut, and you accept your fate because you form the habit of daily routine. Often this habit finally becomes so strong, you don't even try to throw it off. And that is another reason why it pays to start one or two steps above the bottom. By so doing, you will form the habit of looking around, of observing how others get ahead, of seeing opportunity, and of embracing it without hesitation. A splendid example of what I mean is Dan Halpin. During his college days, he was manager of the famous 1930 championship Notre Dame football team, when it was under the direction of the late Newt Rockney. Halpin finished college at a very unfavorable time. The Depression had made jobs scarce, so after a fling at investment banking and motion pictures, he took the first job with a potential future he could find. It was selling electrical hearing aids on a commission basis. Anyone could start in that sort of job and help knew it, but it was enough to open the door of opportunity to him. For almost two years he worked at the job, but it didn't satisfy him. He would never have risen above that job if he had not done something about his dissatisfaction. He aimed first at the job of assistant sales manager of the company, and he got the job. That single step upward placed him high enough above the crowd for him to see still greater opportunity. Also, it placed him where opportunity could see him. In his new position, he did so well selling hearing aids that A.M. Andrews, chairman of the board of the Dictograph Products Company, a competitor of the company for which Halpin worked, asked to meet with him. Mr. Andrews wanted to know something about that man, Dan Halpin, who was taking big sales away from the long-established Dictograph Company. When the interview was over, Halpin was the new sales manager in charge of the Acousticon division of Dictograph. Then, to test young Halpin's mettle, Mr. Andrews went away to Florida for three months, leaving him to sink or swim in his new job. He did not sink. Newt Rockney's spirit of all the world loves a winner and has no time for a loser inspired him to put so much into his job that he was elected vice president of the company. Vice President was a job that most would be proud to earn through 10 years of loyal effort, but Halpin turned the trick in little more than six months. One of the major points I am trying to emphasize through this entire philosophy is that we rise to high positions or remain at the bottom because of conditions we can control, but only if we desire to control them. I am also trying to emphasize another point, that both success and failure are largely the results of habit. I have not the slightest doubt that Dan Halpin's close association with the greatest football coach America ever knew planted in his mind the same kind of desire to excel that made the Notre Dame football team world famous. Truly, there's something to the idea that hero worship is helpful, provided you worship a winner. My belief in the theory that business associations are vital factors, both in failure and in success, was clearly demonstrated when my son Blair was negotiating with Dan Halpin for a position. Mr. Halpin offered him a beginning salary of about one-half what he could have gotten from a rival company. I brought parental pressure to bear and encouraged Blair to accept the job with Mr. Halpin, I believe that close association with people who refuse to compromise with circumstances is an asset that can never be measured in terms of money. The bottom is a monotonous, dreary, unprofitable place for any person. That is why I have taken the time to describe how lowly beginnings can be overcome by proper planning. Make Your Ideas Pay Off Through Specialized Knowledge The woman who prepared the personal service sales plan for her son now receives requests from all parts of the country, from others who want to market their personal services for more money. But don't think that all her plan consists of is clever salesmanship to help her clients get more money for the same services they formerly sold for less. She looks after the interests of the purchaser as well as the seller of personal services. She prepares her plans so that the employers receive full value for the additional money they pay. If you have the imagination and seek a more profitable outlet for your personal services, this suggestion may be the stimulus for which you have been searching. The idea could earn you an income far greater than that of the average doctor, lawyer, or engineer whose education required several years in college. Editor's Comments Mary Kay Ash was literally researching and writing down specialized knowledge when the idea for a new business was born in her imagination. Mary Kay had quit her job as a very successful sales manager in the gift business because she had become discouraged by seeing the men she had trained earning more and being promoted ahead of her. She decided to write an advice book for career women, but as she assembled the knowledge women would need to get ahead, she realized she was writing a business plan for the kind of business she would like to run. She took her life savings of $5,000, went out and found a skincare cream she liked, acquired the rights to it, and began to contact her friends and friends of friends to see if they would like to be beauty consultants for her new company. But what she was offering wasn't just a chance to sell skincare products. It was a very imaginative combination of philosophy and opportunity that gave women the chance to achieve both personal satisfaction and financial success. The company showed a modest profit in its first year, and continued to grow each year until, by the beginning of the 21st century, there were over 1 million independent beauty consultants in 30 countries with wholesale sales of more than $1.5 billion. Three times, Mary Kay Cosmetics was named as one of the 100 best companies to work for in America and Lifetime Television Network named Mary Kay the businesswoman of the century. She became one of the most in-demand motivational speakers and the best-selling author of three books. Neil Balter also started his company based on specialized knowledge and imagination. He got his specialized knowledge from his job as a carpenter's apprentice. His imagination came into play the day he was hired by a customer who wanted to clear up a messy closet by having shelves installed. Now that kind of job must have been offered to thousands of carpenters, but not one of them had the imagination to see in it what Neil Balter saw. When he finished the work, Balter didn't just see nicely fitted shelves. He saw that he had created a solution for a problem that was common to every household in America. He took the money he earned from the job and started his own business, California Closet Company, which specialized in shelves and fittings designed to attractively organize closet space for maximum efficiency. But Balter's imagination didn't stop once he had his own business up and running. Now he could imagine an even bigger operation, so he went out to find new specialized knowledge about operating and franchising a business. Neil Balter had licensed more than 100 California closet franchises when William sonoma offered to buy the company for $12 million. Lillian Vernon's specialized knowledge was in an area that many women had, but they didn't have the imagination she had. To quote from her autobiography, An Eye for Winners, Handbags. I knew about those. Why not sell them? And belts to match. Didn't every teenage girl strolling along the street anywhere in the United States sport a handbag and belt? And my handbags would offer something special. Each one would be personalized with initials. I knew with absolute certainty that teenagers would go for items that made them feel unique. She believed enough in her idea that she spent $495 to take a small ad in Seventeen magazine. The ad brought in $32,000 in orders. That was when Lillian Vernon started to gather other specialized knowledge about renting space, manufacturing products, warehousing and shipping, all of which she'd need to grow her idea of bags and belts into a direct response business featuring a whole array of distinctively monogrammed items. Within a few years she needed more specialized knowledge about product photography, layout, printing, and direct mail as she imagined having her own catalog. She started by mailing a 16-page black-and-white catalog to 125,000 customers who had bought products from her in the past. At the beginning of the 21st century, Lillian Vernon was still picking the merchandise and overseeing the design of her catalogues, many of which now run well over 100 full-color pages, are mailed to millions of people many times each year, and generate approximately $250 million in annual sales. There is another story about gathering specialized knowledge that is so good we will use it to conclude this editorial comment. It actually comes from the Napoleon Hill Archives, and although he did not include it in Think and Grow Rich, he often used it as an example in his lectures and seminars. There was a young man who started out working for the railroad in 1893 as a machinist at five cents an hour. He was always taking courses and learning what he could about steam engines, and by 1905 he had worked his way up through the ranks until he was superintendent of motive power for Chicago Great Western in Old Wine, Iowa. Then he did something that must have made his friends think he had taken leave of his senses. He was attending the Chicago Automobile Show when a red-and-white locomobile caught his attention. He put up his life savings of $700 and convinced a friend to co-sign a loan for $4,300 so he could buy the car. He promptly took it home, put it into a shed, jacked it up, and proceeded to take it apart piece by piece. Then he put it back together again. Then he took it apart and put it back together again. After doing that a few more times, he had learned what he wanted to know. And that was how Walter P. Chrysler gathered the specialized knowledge he needed to get himself out of railroading and into the automobile business. This is the end of the editor's comment. There is no fixed price for sound ideas. Behind all ideas is specialized knowledge, but remember, specialized knowledge is more abundant and more easily acquired than ideas. Because of this truth, there are ever-increasing opportunities for the person capable of helping men and women sell their personal services. Capability means imagination, the one quality needed to combine specialized knowledge with ideas to create organized plans that will yield riches. If you have imagination, this chapter may present you with an idea that is the beginning of the riches you desire. Remember, the idea is the main thing. Specialized knowledge may be found just around the corner, any corner. Happiness is found in doing, not merely in possessing.